Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. As we continue going step by step through the book of Exodus, we're going to spend three weeks in the chapter, the beginning of chapter 20. Last week, just a reminder, uh, we talked about the Ten Commandments and how they apply to Christians. And they don't apply to us in the same way they apply to Israel. We're not under the law. The Ten Commandments were given to Israel, not to us. The Ten Commandments are taken as a whole, and they embody the entire covenant that God made with Israel. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel at this time in Mount Sinai, and he said, if you obey my laws, I'll bless you. And then he gave the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of the laws we found in the rest of the Bible are all summed up in the Ten Commandments. So we spent the whole sermon last time talking about how we don't, we're not under the law, we're not under the Ten Commandments. But now we're going to talk about why we should still read them and listen to them. So if you didn't hear last week, listen to that, then come back and listen to this again. You don't, you're not bound to the law, you're not under the law, this law was given to Israel, yet we're going to talk about how it still can show us things about God and help us. So Exodus chapter 20, we'll start in verse 1 and go down to verse 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do, you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we'll stop there. We're only going to cover the first half of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments divide pretty nicely into 1 through 4, which talks about your relationship to God. And then, verses, and then uh, commandments 6 through 10 talk about your relationship with other people around you. So this week we'll look at verses uh, 1 through 11, or commandments 1 through 4, our relationship with God. So think of the context. God comes to Israel after he takes them out of Egypt and says to them, if you will keep my commandments, I will bless you. Israel says, we'll keep your commandments. That's, that's a covenant God is making with a formal agreement between the nation of Israel and Jehovah. And they say yes, so then God says, okay, here are the commandments. So chapter 20 is part of the covenant that he's making. It's, it's a formal covenant. That's why it's written down on, on the tablets of stone. Just like if you have a, a contract with somebody, you write it down, then you sign it. So it's formal. It's, it's an official document. So that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're the official document written in stone of God's covenant with Israel and their requirement to obey him. So we're going to see in this passage that God gives the law, which is a reflection of him, so that his sinful people who he redeemed can be restored to his image. But the law can only show failure, not fix it. 
So a new image bearer came to restore us by the Spirit. Where did the law come from? Where do these commands come from? Well, God said them, yes, but why did God say them? Socrates asked thousands of years ago, is something right because God commands it, or does God command it because it's right? It's been bothering people for thousands of years. Is it right because God commands it? So God says it, and then it becomes the right thing to do. Or is it right so God says, that's right, so I'm going to tell you to do it? There's a problem with both of those. If it's just right because God said it, then it's arbitrary. Or if God does it because it's right, then there's a standard higher than God that he must transfer to us. This passage gives us something more. The source of the law is from God, but not just in a mechanical sense in that he gave it to us, but it's from his own character. See what God does in verse 21 and 20 verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God says, here's who I am, and here's what I've done. So that you know who's giving you this law, remember everything that's happened. And so we have to go back in the story and say, what did happen? Israel was enslaved to Egypt. Egypt worshipped false gods. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped the sky. They worshipped the land. God shows up into their land, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who are you? I don't know your name. And God says, I'll show you who I am. So he systematically, through to ten plagues, defeated the supposed gods of Egypt, the god of the river, and the god of death, and the god of the cattle. He defeats them to make a point. By the end, what does Pharaoh know? He knows that Jehovah is God, and that the gods of Egypt are not comparable to him. So God reiterates that. He says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I defeated all the other gods. This, what he then says next, reveals who he is. It reveals his character. The law always reveals something about the lawmaker. For an example, have you noticed that when you go to a public place in America, there are handicap access? You know, it's required that they have those? That's a law that's required. Why? What does that tell you about the lawmakers? That they care about people who have mobility issues. So the law says, I care about, I am this way, so I'm going to make this law. That's what we're going to see here. God says, I don't get the law from somewhere, and I don't just arbitrarily make the law. He says, I am. That's what Lord means here, all caps. It means Jehovah. I am. Not I learned, or I found, or I create. I am. Now here's what I am looks like on Mount Sinai. You see, God is eternal, but then God enters into our time and space. What does that look like? That's what the Ten Commandments are. Ten Commandments are saying, here's an eternal, all-powerful God. This is what he looks like when he comes down into the life of his people at a particular time. So the laws then say, well, God is different than us, but we can learn about him by what he says to us. So what do we see in these four commandments? What does it tell us about God? You see how the Ten Commandments are still important? It's not about do this or else. That's the Old Covenant. But it does say, here's who God is. And God is still creator, God is still Lord, God is still the king of the, of the universe. Amen. And this is going to tell us about him. So look at the first commandment, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. 
the supremacy and ex- exclusivity of God. That's what this tells you about God. You see, this commandment right here is the most important of all the commandments. If you read through the Ten Commandments, I believe you can see them built on top of each other. The first commandment leads to the second commandment, which leads to the third one, all the way down. So the first commandment is in some ways the most important because what does it do? It shows you how different God is than everyone and everything else, how much higher he is. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Before me means in front of me, as in you don't prioritize your gods and put me second, but it also means in the presence of. So you stand before the judge. What's that mean? You stand in the presence of the judge. So he's saying, you shall have no other gods in my presence. Now, where is God's presence? Everywhere. You see the exclusive claim he's making? Don't bring any gods into my presence, and I'm everywhere. So you shall have no other gods before me. There's not any God anywhere. And he's saying, did you see what I did to the supposed gods of Egypt? Don't have any other gods before me. I am the Lord. This is a difficult problem. This is the core of all the problems for Israel and for us. Because our problem isn't with honoring our parents. Our problem with is, with, is with putting other gods before the true God. And you say, I don't worship gods. I don't bow down before anything. That's true. And in this context, that was the most obvious example. That's the way they expressed idolatry of, of false worship. But Luther says, as a way to apply it to us, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly your God. Amen. You see, that's what God is telling them. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. I redeemed you. I'll create you. I'll support you. I'll care for you. Trust me. Make me your God because no one else can do that. What we say is sometimes the opposite. So ask yourselves, who do you trust? What do you trust? That's your God. Is it your abilities to work? Many times young people have the ability to work, and they feel like that'll carry them through. Maybe it's your wise financial investments. As you get older, you make good choices, and you're trusting that to carry you through life. Maybe it's your family. You've worked on your family. You've got a family structure, and you're trusting that. You see how all these things become your God? God is saying, don't trust anyone like you trust me. Don't put any gods before me. Why? He just showed you why. That's why we preach verse by verse. So you can see what God has been doing this whole time. He's showing them why they shouldn't have any other gods. Where was the God of Egypt when they were in slavery? Where was the God of Egypt when they were being attacked in the desert? Where was Baal when they didn't have water? You see what God's doing? He's saying, they can't compare to me. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, how weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. The gods are weak, and yet we still worship them, and what do they do? They draw strength from us. You see, God says, I give you strength. False gods take things from you. They build up worship, and you devote, and you invest, and then they take it all away. You invest time into your family, but then your family is gone. The God took everything you had and left you alone. You put all your time into work, then you get fired, then you retire. It's gone. All the time and investment's gone. Ultimately, everything ends in the grave. 
Why are we worshiping these gods? See, God is saying, I'm the only true God. Don't have anyone else before me. They'll just disappoint you. See, the world knows this. Rolling Stone magazine says, that, they sort of paraphrase, thou shalt not worship false idols. But who else is there? You see, this is what this passage is not just telling us what not to do, it's telling us what to do. See, the world often realizes that everything's empty and vain. They just sort of live for the moment. That's what Rolling Stone is saying. It goes, I know we're not supposed to worship money and sex and drugs and all that, but what else is there? This is saying there is something else. The Ten Commandments says, stop worrying about doing right and realize that there is a God who saves, Amen. who is transcendent above this world. And that leads us to the next one. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. What's this telling us about God? God is transcendent. God is not a part of this world. He's above this world. Isn't that what it means to be God? To be above the weakness of this world? False gods are a part of this world. And so we make images to them. We can actually visualize and create them because they're already here. He's saying the God you worship is not part of this creation. He is the creator, not the creation. He's transcendent above us. So he's saying, worship me as only God, but here's how you worship me. It's who you worship, but also how you worship. See, God doesn't just say, as long as you worship me, you can do it however you want. No. The supreme God that dictates how he will be worshipped. And he's saying, here's who I am. I'm above this earth. I'm above the creatures in the earth and under the earth and in the sky. You should not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, I am your God. Jehovah Yahweh, I am your God. How do we transfer that into our life? Don't we want things we can see and touch and put our hands on? And yet, what is the church service about? Words. We sing words. We pray words. We read words. We focus everything on words, on what God has told us. We want things we can see. God says, no, I can't be fit, put into a box that you can imagine. I have to be put into words because words are the only thing that can express the transcendence of God. So God relates, us, relates to us in his word. Here's how you worship God. You worship God in spirit and truth not in images. Riken says, when he commands us not to make idols, he is saying he will not be captured, contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. See, don't we want to manipulate God? God is like. No, he's not. He is God. He's not like anything else. He's above everything else. We want to put him down to things he's like. We want to domesticate God so we can manipulate and control him. I'm watching, we're watching a show called The West Wing, a little dated. And there's a Christian character in there who represents sort of the bad people. And she has a very harsh demeanor. And every time there's a political conflict, she brings out the Bible as a weapon. Here's what God says. You're wrong. That's manipulating the truth to serve an end. It's taking the truth that God has given to us, transcendent truth about a tr transcendent God, and forcing it into a political box. We want that, though, because it serves our ends. God is saying, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, 
You shall not bring me down to your level. I can't be contained. And as we go on, he's the only God. He can't be contained. Even his name is to be treated differently. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. So if you see Lord with all caps, that doesn't mean Lord in in the original language. It's a word for Yahweh, Jehovah. So the name of the Lord is not Lord. The name of the Lord is Jehovah, Yahweh, I am. It's important to understand when he says don't take the name of the Lord. Well, what is the name? Remember Moses asked God, who shall I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God says, here's my name that I will give you that you will take to them. I am that I am. A funny sounding name, isn't it? Unless you understand the importance behind it. He can't be contained. He is what he is. He doesn't become. He hasn't become. He just is. That's the name of God. You don't take that name lightly. The name that encompasses all of creation, that redeems people, you don't take it lightly. The, this tells us there's honor and prestige in, in the very name of God that must be recognized if we want to see God for who he is. In the Old Testament, this was taken, sometimes we, we want to diminish this down to don't say certain words like OMG. Stop. You're starting at the wrong end of things. Let's start at God's end. One man, a uh, guy in Duma, he, he did a survey of the Old Testament. He said, here are three ways that the Yahweh's name is commonly profaned in the Old Testament. Sorcery. Sorcery? Yes, using God's name as a weapon, as a talisman, as a, a charm. Maybe this doesn't affect us so much today, but that's just because we live in Western America. There's other places in the world where a name has power over people, and they want the name of a God so that they can use it to control people. But don't we do that in the same way? We use God's name as a weapon to legitimize what we want. A little bit of magic. I've got the right name, therefore I have the right power. That's taking the name of the ultimate, transcendent, redeeming God and bending it and putting it into a box to use. God says, don't take my name in vain. But also in the Old Testament, it was used in false prophecy. There's a, there's a phrase in the Old Testament that says, thus saith the Lord. Thus says Jehovah. And when the prophet said that, the people were required to listen because he was bringing a message from God. So when people learned that, what did they do? I'm like, wait a minute, I can use that too. And they said, I want some things, so thus says the Lord, give me your money. That hasn't changed, has it? People still take the name of the Lord in vain by saying, I serve the Redeemer God. Give me your money. Give me your attention. Give me your devotion. We see it on television with sort of televangelists, but it's in local churches too. God told me to tell you. Did he? Or did you just co-opt God's name for your own purpose? You see, it's dangerous to say God told me unless God actually told you. In the Old Testament, the punishment was death. But today, if we want to know who God is, we don't use his name lightly. And the third way was taking false oaths. I swear in the name of the Lord. Do you? He says, I will not hold that person guiltless. God is here. What has he been doing through the book of Exodus? Making a name for himself. Taking his name, Jehovah, from obscurity to where no one knew it. Gave it to Moses. Took it all the way to the most powerful empire in the world and said, now you'll know my name. 
He took the people of Israel to do what? To make his name known. How can we then take that name and diminish it? Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. He's been spending thousands of years making it great. That's what we should get out of this passage. Now, if you want to take that further into respecting the name of God and respecting the name of Jesus and Lord, okay, but make sure you start at the top end, the big stuff, the, the stuff that we get away with sometime before we take it down to the lower level. And then finally, with the Sabbath, we see the desirability of God. Say, what? Desirability of God? Yes, keep the Sabbath. Why? Well, first of all, back then, this was probably the first uh, labor bill of rights. You weren't allowed to make, let, make people work seven days a week. What, if you were, you know, they had slaves back then. We'll deal with that a little bit later. Wouldn't you hear this and think, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my entire life? My master cannot make me work. I have a guaranteed day off. So that's, a, that's something that tells about God, that he cares for those who are at the lower end of society. But more importantly, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all in them, and the rest did the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath. You see what happens? God's saying, you keep the Sabbath because I kept the Sabbath. Now, what's the motivation here? Do you want to be like God? Do you want to follow your life after God? Does God represent for you all that's good? If the answer is yes, and you're like, great, now he tells us how he orders his life, I want to do that too. But what do we do? We're like, eh, God's great, but I prefer another way of life. James Smith says, what we love, the object of our love, is a specific vision of the good life, an implicit picture of what we think human flourishing looks like. We say that's what it looks like to be a good and happy human, and we pursue that. What God is saying is, here's what it looks like. It looks like me. Now ask yourself, what's the good life look like for you? And I bet you can trace that back to what you spend your time on. Does it look like a career? Turns out you work weekends, don't you? Because you need to advance your career. Does it look like family? I don't want to get anybody's nerves, but are you transferring things to your kids that should be for the church? Are you taking time away from the body of believers and giving it to your children? You see what's happening? You create a vision of the world that's not the same as God's. So the Sabbath is saying you will structure your weekly life in a way that God does. Now, the New Testament tells us a lot more about that. But it's saying God's way is the best way. Amen. You should want to be like this. That's what all four of these things are telling us. So we see this is where the, the law came, came from God's own character. God, the ultimate God, the ultimate good that we should all want to be like and follow. But what was the purpose? Why did God give the Ten Commandments to his people? Maybe the most common answer is so they would do right. No, that's not the primary answer. That's man's answer. That's how we reduce everything. What do I have to do? What are the requirements? But God had a different plan, a plan that started all the way back in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, what did God do? He created. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created a man in his own image. You realize the power behind that? The ultimate being, conceivable, creator of heaven and earth, made man to reflect him. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female both reflect the very image of God. That was God's intent for the world, to have people who reflected him. But what happened? Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You see what Satan's offering her? A replacement. God says, I made you in my image. And Satan says, no, he didn't. But if you do this, then you will be in the image of God. Satan presented a different way of living that he said was better. That's our problem today. God says, here's what I want. Here's what I look like. Be like that. And we say, nah, this looks better. Young people especially struggle with this because they haven't seen the results as much. But a lot of old people haven't seen the results either. They won't see them to the grave. But young people especially struggle, and, and we have to notice that faith means we believe that this will happen before it happens. See, Eve had never seen the results of sin. She'd never seen them. Satan had his easiest target in some ways. He said, this will be better for you. You'll really be in the image of God this way. And Satan and Eve believed him, and Adam as well. We do the same thing. So what does God do? God comes down the book of Exodus and redeems a people to recreate his image. See, the world had fallen into sin, but God says, I'm going to recreate, I'm going to restore my image. I'm going to do it through my people. So he goes to Egypt. He rescues them out. He brings them to himself. In chapter 19, and verse 6, he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, like me. That's what Exodus is about, restoring the image of God in man. And that's what the law is supposed to do here. It's saying, Israel, the world has fallen, so I'm going to give you a pattern of God. If you follow it, you will become like God, in the original sense. You will reflect the fallen image. It will be restored. That should have motivated them. To be like God, to restore that that image of God by keeping the law. You see what the law's purpose was? It wasn't just to obey, it was to restore the image. The more they kept the law, the more they would look like God. But here's what the law didn't give them. It gave them no ability. It gave them no desire. It didn't change them. It just showed them. It says, be like this. It only had external motivators. It said, obey and you get blessings. Disobey and you get curses. That's all outside coming in. The law was a mirror. The law was a road sign. Barnhouse puts it this way. The law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of the mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the purpose of the mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in the mirror and find your face is dirty, you do not then reach to take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. That's what the law does. It shows you what God looks like, but it doesn't do anything to help you get there. It's ineffective, because inside your heart, you still want what Satan offers. You still want that different vision. And all the law does is show you how wrong you are and how far off base you are. 
So what do we need? We still need the same thing that Adam needed. We need someone to restore us to the image of God. We need the same thing that, that Exodus, the people in Exodus needed. Restore us to the image of God. And so God gave the law to show us that law couldn't do it. Behavior changes couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. So what do we need? We need a restoration of the image of God without the law. The whole Old Testament is saying you can't do it with the law, so we need it without the law. And the first step in that, in God's plan, was sending someone who was in the image of God. Adam fell, so he sent a second Adam. We're looking at Colossians in the New Testament, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. You see how he's comparing to don't make images? Here's the person who created those things. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then all things he might have the preeminence. He is that God you should have worshipped. Yet, he's also the image of God on earth. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The law reflected God, but it wasn't enough. So God sent Jesus, who was the image of the invisible God, the perfect image of God. What does God look like on this earth? Doesn't look like us. Doesn't look like Abraham, Isaac, David. Doesn't look like Peter. Doesn't look like John. Looks like Jesus, the image of God. How is he the image of God? By nature, that's what he's saying here, but also by obedience. You see, Jesus kept the law. Jesus knew the Ten Commandments. He kept these Ten Commandments. He only had one God before him. He didn't make carved images. He kept the Sabbath, and there was a lot of disagreement about whether he kept it or not, but he did. See, God was the, Jesus was the image in two ways, his nature, but also in the way he lived. He grew in stature with both man and God. He conformed his life into the image of God. That doesn't help us, does it? All it shows us is another way that we failed. Now it's a practical example of someone who actually kept the law that we didn't. It's another mirror that we look at and say, well, we're really not like Jesus. I thought I might be able to keep the Ten Commandments. But then Jesus showed up, and I definitely can't be like him. So now we're lost again. So what does Christ do? Christ doesn't say, no, it's okay, just do the best you can and be like me. He said, that's not good enough. Colossians 2, the next chapter says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that's the image of God. And you are complete in him, buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What was the handwriting of requirements? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. You shall take the name of the Lord. That's explicitly what he's talking about. Jesus didn't say, I'll help you keep the law. He got rid of the law. He removed the mirror and said, you don't have to keep it anymore. I'll keep it. And all the stuff that you broke, 
I'll pay for those two. You see how much better that is than just do right and live right? The image of God comes to earth, lives perfectly, and bears all the distortions that we made of that image. Nailed them to the cross. God removes the mirror of the law. We're not judged by it anymore. That's what we say. We no longer have to keep the Ten Commandments. Christ kept them for us. But he doesn't stop there. The story of the Bible goes creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You see, God is going to restore what he started with. A group of people who can be his image on earth. That's what he's always wanted. We mess the plan up, Christ fixed it, and God is going to restore it. He's already restoring it. The image of God is being restored in Christians by the Spirit as we speak. You see, what did the old law have a problem with? There was no desire to be like God. There was only a desire to get stuff. So when we go back to the Ten Commandments and we say you don't have to keep them, there's two responses. There's great, I can do whatever I want. Or there's, but I want to do what's right. We talk to both of you. If you think you're free to do whatever you want, you're not saved. You're not redeemed. God is not your father. You are of your father, the devil. You see the contrast? If you don't care about being in the image of God, you are not of God. So me telling you the Ten Commandments does nothing but show you what you're not. Me putting up the Ten Commandments in schools only shows you what you're not. But the other kind of person is those who want to keep what God has given us. So the first one, you only have one option. Throw yourself at Christ's feet and ask him to take away your sin. That's your only hope. Amen. Keeping the Ten Commandments is not going to help you. In fact, if you think you can keep the Ten Commandments, you don't understand the Ten Commandments. So the option for you who don't care about the Ten Commandments is to realize that you are doomed and to throw yourself at the perfect image of God, and he'll save you. Amen. But once that happens, guess what's going to happen inside of you? The Holy Spirit is going to change you. He's going to make you a new heart. And that new heart will say, the greatest good is to be like God. And then you're going to go looking around for someone to tell you how to be like God. The Spirit creates a desire that says, I know I'm not under the Ten Commandments, but what can I learn from them? How can I see who God is so that I can be like Him? You see the difference that creates in Christianity? In your preaching, in your raising of children? You don't beat your children over the head with the law because it won't do anything. You give them the gospel so that their heart will be changed. They'll come to you and ask for instruction. Does that sound like a miracle? It is a miracle. It is a miracle for your children to ask you for help. I've got six kids. Yet, that's the work of the Spirit. You see, when Christ died on the cross, that's what he performed. That's why it took so much effort. That's why it took the Son of God, the perfect image, to be marred, to be broken, to be distorted. He said you couldn't even recognize him. The perfect image of God come down and beaten so you couldn't even tell who he was. Why? So you could be in the image of God. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what the Ten Commandments were pointing for. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, you think the Ten Commandments are great? How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? But we all, 
with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and not being guilted like it was in the past, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see what's changed? You looked into the mirror before and it only showed you how bad you were. Now you look into the mirror and you're transformed by the Spirit. The law doesn't change you. The Spirit changes you. You're given a new ability. If we don't get this, we'll spend the rest of our life trying to do right. But if we get it, we'll want to do right. Luther said, we will regard Moses as a teacher, but we will not regard him as our lawgiver. Christ redeemed us. A student heard this from Luther and he said, if what you're saying is true, then we may live as we want. Christ paid it all. Luther said, yes. Now, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want to be like God? You can in Christ. Do you not want to be like God? Repent or you'll be judged. Look to Christ, the image of God, who paid for our sins and offers it freely to us. Let's pray.